Welcome to Chan's The Man Apologetics. I'm your host, Chan Heron, where I discuss doctrine, apologetics, behavior, the Christian worldview, and sometimes just tell stories. Thank you for joining me today. This is a tough topic today. It has to deal with the topic that nobody really wants to think about or talk about, and that's death. About a year and a half ago, my family lost our brother, my brother Cheston. Cheston was uh, 42 years old. He was born with Down syndrome. Uh, a week before he died, he was put in hospice care, and so we knew it was coming. And I remember the last few days that I saw him. He was just fading and fading and he had this great attitude about life and I just hugged him and cried and cried and cried. It just tore me apart. And in a future episode, I'm gonna do, tell some stories about my brother Cheston, but it was hard. Even when we knew it was coming, also, we had uh, at our school, it's been almost exactly a year when one of our uh, teenagers, a 16-year-old, was uh, killed in a horrible boating accident. And it just, it just brought grief and pain on our school. Because we're thinking, why? This is a 16-year-old boy. He's, he, he's not doing anything illegal or or more he's efficient and he and he died and when you when you hear stories about that or you experience something like that it brings that enemy of death into focus because we all are going to face it at some point and it does not matter your religion your creed, your race, your sex, we all are going to die. And death is no respecter of persons. So that brings up the very interesting question. What happens after we die? Is this it? Is this, is this all there is? Or is there something else after this life? For starters, if someone were to ask you to define death, could you give them a definition? That's a hard question. We know what it is, but how would you put the definition of death into words? Death is, and then fill in the blank. Well, I think the answer to that is going to depend on what your worldview is. So if your worldview is uh, naturalism, that that the material world is all that exists, then when you die, you cease to exist. You are no longer in existence. The you that was once alive is no longer you. You are wiped out of existence. Um, if, if you are, uh, let's say you have a pantheistic worldview, such as uh, uh, any form of uh, reincarnation, then death becomes a stop being you momentarily and you're 
born again, you're reincarnated into something else. Or is death a temporary disembodiment of your soul and your body? Now, this would be a form of substance dualism, meaning that uh, human beings are made up of two things, a material self, which would be our body, and an immaterial self, what we'd call the soul or the mind. Now, the definition of death that I'm going to use is the last one I just gave, a, a separation of body and soul, where the soul, because technically you are not your body from the uh, theistic worldview. You are a soul that has a body. And at death, your soul, which is that thing that contains consciousness and animates the body, leaves the body and goes either into a disembodied state in the presence of God or a disembodied state separated from God, and it's temporary. So death in the theistic worldview means separation. You're separated from your your body. You are separated from your friends. You're separated from your family members. So that's what we mean by death. A few years ago, I was invited to be on a panel discussion at Centenary College here in, in Shreveport. And it was a panel that involved myself, who represented the Christian worldview. We had a lady that was uh, a Hindu. Uh, we had an individual that uh, identified with the uh, Egyptian paganism uh, religion. There was a Muslim there was a, a Jew and a, a person that uh, was Wicca. And we were seated on stage in like a semicircle. And I was on the far end. Uh, if you're facing, if you're looking at the stage, I was on the, uh, I was the far right. And I was usually last. And, and what, would, what would take place is the moderator of this would ask certain worldview type questions. And then each person that represented that religion or worldview would go about answering that question. And I remember the last question that was asked was this one, what happens after we die? Now remember I'm last. So the question was posed to the Hindu uh, lady first, and she brought about karma mentioned karma and reincarnation, that there's such a thing as good karma and bad karma. And you have to get rid of your bad karma before you can uh, eventually uh, reach enlightenment, which is reincarnation over and over again until you have burned off your bad karma. Then it moved along to the next individual, which was uh, a Jewish uh, rabbi, and she mentioned that uh, if you're good, then God will reward you. And if you're bad, God will punish you in the afterlife. The Muslim gentleman, when the question was posed to him, he said something I'd never heard before. He said, you will stand before an angel and the angel will ask you two questions. One, question one was, who is your prophet? And question two is, have you lived a good life? And in the first question, if you answer anything else, 
other than Muhammad, then you would be sent to Islamic hell. On the second question, if you answer the first one correctly, then you, if you said yes, uh, you were a good person, then what would happen is uh, Allah would weigh, put your good works on the scale and put your bad works on the other side of the scale and see which way the scale tips. And if the scale tips in favor of your good works, if you've done more good works than bad works, then Allah will invite you into Islamic paradise. But if not, if you're, the scale tips in favor of your bad works, if you've done more bad works than good works, then obviously the scale tips that way and, and Allah will escort you into uh, Islamic hell. But according to him, Allah could change his mind at any time. You know, he, he could send people uh, either direction and vice versa, no matter what the scale tips. So there's really no assurance. Then the, the lady who uh, participated in Wiccan was asked the question. And uh, she answered that heaven is kind of like whatever you want it to be. Everybody's heaven is different. So you create in your own mind what you want heaven to be or hell to be. And mainly it was not something that you went to after you died. It's what you created here. So there was no really life after death per se in Wiccan. It was more of a subjective creation based on the individual. And then the lady who practiced Egyptian paganism said that they have no doctrine of life after death that she doesn't know. And then it was my turn. Now, as I listened to each one of these answers, I pointed out to the audience, I, I, I recapped each one of the answers that we heard that you're reincarnated, that you go to heaven or hell if you've been a good person, that you go to the Islamic heaven or hell if you followed the prophet and you were a good person, that you, were, uh, you went to uh, the Wiccan uh, definition of heaven or hell, whatever you created. And then we had Egyptian paganism, we didn't have no belief. And I said, I know this, you cannot do them all. Somebody is incorrect because all these definitions and descriptions of what happens after you die contradict one another. Now, they could all be wrong, but they can't all be correct. And I said, there's only one way we would really know what happens after we die. And that would be if somebody died and came back and told us. Ah, but there's where the theistic view in general and the Christian view in particular is separate because we have that. The man Jesus of Nazareth made a very bold claim that he was God in the flesh, that he claimed to be able to do miracles, and these were witnessed. And God vindicated those claims by his resurrection from the dead. To help you remember the evidence for the resurrection, I want to give you the feat, F-E-A-T, that demonstrates the fact of the resurrection. The letter F in the word feet is fatal torment. We need to have a death before we can have a resurrection. We have it confirmed in nine independent sources, four biblical and five non-biblical sources, 
that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was killed under Pontius Pilate. What are those independent sources? Well, first of all, we have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Wait a minute, Chan. You can't use that. You can't use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's from the Bible. Okay. However, what we're doing here is we're setting aside the New Testament as sacred scripture, and we're using it as a historical text, and the earliest writers, um, the earliest sources that uh, recorded the events surrounding this Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. So why would we ignore the early, early sources? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four biblical sources that all report the crucifixion of Jesus within a very short time of his life. We also have five non-biblical sources. I'd like to mention two of them. The reason why just two is um, because of time, but the two that I'm going to mention are probably the most well-known. One is Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian that records the death of Jesus, and he, he was not a follower of Christianity. The second non-biblical source is uh, Tacitus. Now, Tacitus was a Roman historian, and he mentioned Jesus as suffering the extreme penalty under Pontius Pilate. Now, the extreme penalty there was a well-known uh, euphemism, if you will, for uh, crucifixion. There is one source that denies the crucifixion, and it is the Quran. Now, when you look at the Quran, and it actually says in one of the chapters, for assuredly they did not, they did not kill him. However, the Quran is 500 years later, and when you compare the Quran to the earliest, most independent sources that we have, it seems reasonable to accept those sources as reliable and reject the Quran. So to my Muslim friends, I would ask, why should I accept the report of the Quran, which is late and it is the only source that denies the crucifixion? If there's other, or if it was false that Jesus was crucified, shouldn't that be recorded in other places? but it's not. So I think we can reasonably say with a high degree of certainty that the crucifixion was an actual historical event. The E in feet, F-E-A-T, should remind you of the empty tomb. Now, this is what we call circumstantial evidence. Just because the tomb was empty, it does not therefore necessarily follow that what made it empty was Jesus rising from the dead and leaving the tomb. Maybe something else caused the tomb to be empty. Well, we have an acronym within an acronym to help us for the evidence of the empty tomb. The acronym inside the evidence for the empty tomb is the word JET, J-E-T. The J stands for the Jerusalem factor component of the empty tomb. What we mean by that is all the events surrounding Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, took place right in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. 
and people were very familiar with this event. And the resurrection narratives began in the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's the issue. It would have been impossible for a resurrection legend, if you will, to get off the ground in the very city where everything took place if the tomb had not been empty. Because all the authorities would have to do would be to go down to the tomb, roll the stone back and say, what are y'all talking about? Look, there he is. There's his corpse right there. So the Jerusalem factor is something to consider. This is a story that started within the city and moved without. It wasn't the other way around where this legend started from without and found its way within the city of Jerusalem. If it would have happened that way from without the story comes and then works its way into the city, then we could probably probably conclude that this may have been smuggled in as a legend, but we don't have that. So that's a piece of evidence for the empty tomb. The second E is enemy attestation. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, if your mother says you're an honest person, you would kind of think, well, so what? This, you know, you, your mom has to say that. She's your mom. But if your worst enemy concludes that you are a honest person, then we could take his testimony as probably credible because an enemy is not going to be sympathetic to your cause. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, we have this story of the guards where the guards went and reported everything that had happened. I'd like to know exactly what they said because it sounds like they reported everything that happened, meaning the resurrection account in Matthew. And the authorities said, here's what we're going to do. We want you to say that the disciples came and stole the body while, we were, while you guys were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's attention, we'll back you up on this. Now, what they're saying there, though indirectly, is that the tomb was empty because there would be no need to come up with a stolen body theory if the tomb was occupied. And so it's kind of like the little boy who he tells his teacher, uh, my dog ate my homework. What he's saying indirectly is that his homework is not available for inspection. So we have this enemy factor that that or enemy attestation that comes in to say indirectly the disciples came and stole the body, which was an admission that the tomb was unoccupied. Then you have the T of jet in the empty tomb, and the T stands for the testimony of women. Did you know that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the women as the primary witnesses of the empty tomb? But only two of the Gospels mentioned that the men came in there. Now, why is that important? Because women in that era were considered less than human. A woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. As a matter of fact, in the Talmud, it talked about that if a woman gave a testimony and a robber gave a testimony in a court, that the robber's testament testimony was on par with that of a woman simply because of her sex. And yet 
you have as the primary witnesses of the empty tomb women. Now, this is kind of embarrassing. Because if you're trying to if you're trying to make up a story and you want your story to get a lot of mileage out of it, you don't have women as your primary witnesses because they're going to be disbelieved. As a matter of fact, if you look at Luke's account in Luke chapter 24, when the women come back and tell the disciples, the disciples said that they left because they did not believe the women. It was like nonsense to them. Now, when you put all those together, Jerusalem factor, the enemy attestation, the testimony of women, you've got really, really good historical evidence to show that the tomb was empty. The third piece of evidence in our feet, F-E-A-T, is A, the appearances. Now, the disciples had experiences that they interpreted as the risen Jesus appearing to them. Now, historians have discovered what is known as an early creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. And Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was buried, and then was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared. And after that, Paul lists six appearances, three to individuals. The individuals were Peter, James, and himself. And then the group appearances, the other three, were to the 12, to 500, and to all the apostles. So you've got three group appearances and you've got three individual appearances. Now, what's interesting about this is we know that 1 Corinthians was written around 55 A.D. Jesus, give or take a few years, was crucified in 33 A.D. So this creed, and to give you an example of what a creed is, a creed is a, is a tactic in, in oral tradition that is used to pass down important information in a way that is easily uh, easily memorizable and easily retained. So, for example, when you learned your ABCs, you learned it in a song, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, because that song, the ABC song, is a form of a creed. All right, have you ever said the Pledge of Allegiance? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. The form of the Pledge of Allegiance is, is what we call a creed. It's put in a form that you can easily memorize and it's easily retainable. Well, this is what we have in 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you. Well, that means that Paul wrote it down in 55, but it had to exist before it was written down. So we can get that early, early, early. So here's what we know. The appearances were eyewitness accounts, and they were early, early eyewitness. Now, just because a person has an eyewitness account doesn't necessarily mean that that person is telling the truth. Maybe they're mistaken. But here's what we do know. We know the disciples were not lying. Now, they could have been hallucinating, they could have been um, mistaken, but they were not lying because liars make poor martyrs. You see, all the disciples that claim to have seen Jesus died for the belief that Jesus appeared to them. Now, I know people all the time. 
We see this all the time in the news. People will die for what they believe to be true, but nobody dies for a known lie. That's the difference. And when you look at the appearances, Jesus appeared to people in individuals. He appeared to groups and he appeared to skeptics and even an enemy. One of the persons he appeared to was James. James was the brother of Jesus. James was not a believer. We know this from John chapter uh, 7 that says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, if you have a brother out there and your brother came to you and said, hey, I got something I want to tell you. I'm God. Yeah, right. You'd be like, oh, really? Go do something. Go walk on the water in the pool in the backyard. Come on down the cemetery tonight. Let's raise people from the dead. No, you're, you're not God. Well, James would have kind of the same reaction. And yet later on, we find James is the leader in the Jerusalem church, and the historian Josephus records his martyrdom. Now, what would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was the son of God? It's got to be some kind of impact event. Seems like the resurrection would be an impact event. And James is listed by name in the creed. But we also have a complete enemy that Jesus appeared to, and that was Paul. Paul was not a friend of Christianity. As a matter of fact, he was going to put people in jail that followed Christ. And yet he gives us his personal testimony that he experienced the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So how do we explain that? He says that it is his experience that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And it's what the it's the appearances that are so important because the world was changed through those 12 men when they went out and preached, we have seen the risen Lord. And all throughout the book of Acts, you see these guys preaching this. Y'all killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. And so the appearances are one of the strongest, the, the, the strongest pieces of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Now, you have to ask yourself one question. Do you believe the eyewitnesses? Some people do. Some people don't. I think you have to weigh them. And I think when you look at the, the, the number of appearances and the number of eyewitnesses, and you look at how they went to their death, It's very good possibility, even a high degree of probability. And if God exists, the miracles are possible that Jesus did appear to these individuals. Now, the T in feet, F-E-A-T, is the transformation of the lives of the disciples. Now, here's what you have to understand in uh, first century Judaism. Did you know that in first century Judaism, There was no such teaching as dying and rising Messiah. Okay, so, you know, we know the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah, but you have to understand what it was that they were actually looking for based on their definition of a Messiah. A Messiah, the Messiah, from the Jewish standpoint, was a political leader. He was going to rescue Israel from Roman rule, and he's going to set up Israel as an independent state. There was no such thing, no such teaching as a Messiah who was killed. 
And so in first century Judaism, if your Messiah is killed, then your thinking is, oh, he's not the Messiah. We were wrong. Let's look for the real Messiah. So when Jesus is crucified, I want you to try to imagine what was going through the disciples' mind. As a matter of fact, in John, it says the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews. Now, why would they be hiding? Because they were afraid they were going to be the one, they were going to be the ones that were killed next. And it was based on their faulty view of the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. And these disciples go from being scared, scattered, and skeptical to bold proclaimers that Jesus had risen and appeared to them. As a matter of fact, they went out in public. And the book of Acts records them that they were they they were not afraid of any kind of harm that the um, authorities might do to them, even though they were commanded at certain times not to preach or speak in the name of Jesus. They ignored this command. And when they were thrown in prison, when they were beaten, they considered it joy. They they were not concerned about it. So, what caused the disciples to go? to have this amazing transformation? That's a great question. It would have to be some kind of impact event. But remember, in the last section, I also mentioned James. The transformation of James and the transformation of Paul are, are, are amazing because you see how they were transformed. They were transformed by the physical appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus, the risen Jesus today, continues to transform transform lives. And I am a product of this transformed life. The risen Jesus has saved me. He has rescued me from the consequences of sin and death. Now, when you put all this together, fatal torment, the empty tomb, the appearances, the transformation, you get really good evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead if God exists. But if the resurrection did not happen, what that means is our faith is futile because faith is only as good as the object you place it in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile, useless. It doesn't matter. If the resurrection did not happen, then our faith is futile and the disciples are deceivers, including Jesus. Jesus would have been a charlatan. If the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is futile. The disciples are deceivers, and then sin is a sovereign. According to the Apostle Paul, we are still in our sin. We are still in trouble. However, if the resurrection did happen, then God exists. Christianity is true because everything that Jesus said is true. It's vindicated, and anybody that says anything against him is lying. And that there is life after death because someone has died and come back and told us about it. That's the gospel message. 
Thank you for listening to Chan's The Man Apologetics, where I discuss doctrine, apologetics, behavior, the Christian worldview, and sometimes just tell stories. Thank you.